Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. And I'm Robin. Together, we research and break down complex issues facing our society and bring our findings to you every other week. Our promise to you is to bring honest analysis, backed by research, to skew our bias towards what can be factually supported, and to try and make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. Naturally, we're human, and our blind spots and biases will show through, but our goal isn't to convince you to think any certain way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that together we can discuss and address them in a thoughtful, beneficial way. Due to the nature of our podcast, some of the things that we talk about can get pretty heavy and they may even be divisive. We try to lighten the mood and to avoid too much doom and gloom, but we still suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. This week, we're taking on the timely topic of presidential transitions. With all the talk of task forces and transition budgets, we wondered what exactly happens in the two months between election day and inauguration day. Turns out there is a lot happening there. <laughs> so get your drink ready, definitely get ready for a history lesson, and welcome to our fireside. Okay, everybody, so we're recording this on November 18th, 2020, and the state of things is stagnant. The current administration is still maintaining that fraud and technical problems and county-level irregularities have obscured President Trump's actual and significant victory. Uh, many conservative pundits and men on the street are reminding us of the same thing we've been telling you for a few episodes now. Election results are not official until the Electoral College meets, no matter which media outlet calls it. However, we are telling you that to remind you that there is a whole official process to this election thing. They are pointing it out as an effort to remind folks of the time 20 years ago when the results of the presidential election came down to 537 votes in one state. Uh, yes, in that case, most of the media outlets did call the election in favor of Al Gore. But there's a really, really big difference this time. Or if you would prefer, 5,725,233 individual differences. The idea that, yeah, right? The idea that there would be fraud or technical mistakes or irregularities to the tune of 5 million votes across more than five states is logistically, well, I mean, it's just so improbable. Yes, for a little over a month in 2000, a lot of folks thought Al Gore was a president. And yes, he exhausted every legal option before he conceded in December. But the key point here is that the situation in 2000 was vastly different than the one today. And yeah, that delay did have a significant impact on what Bush's team was able to accomplish during that transition period. And that leads us directly into the meat of today's episode in what might possibly be the smoothest segue we've ever executed on this podcast. Yes, take advantage of it. So today, the peaceful transition of power from one administration to another is basically the hallmark of American democracy that we just won't shut up about. <laughs> Seriously, as a nation, we have this weird pride about it. It's akin to when your coworker gets a new car and won't stop talking about it for three months. I mean, I get it, but dang, like you should have a car and you're far from the only person with a car. That is to say, 
we're not the only democracy with peaceful transitions of power. But man, we sure like to tote that line about it being a hallmark around like it's somehow special. Suffice it to say, we're pretty proud of it, and we talk about it nonstop. Until 2020, I guess, when half the country is like, screw tradition, elections, verification, oversight, societal norms, national security, international stability, and libs. Eight more years! Sorry, I had a moment. Anyway, <laughs> America's long history of peaceful transitions, even between opposing parties, actually is pretty cool. Historically, those in power tend to um, zealously guard that power. Looking at you, North Korea. So the fact that we've managed to hand the reins from one administration to another since 1796 is a little trendsetting. Only the United Kingdom has had more peaceful transitions with 74 changes in prime minister since the 18th century. Now we can debate about the overall democracy of those early elections later, uh, but I mean, our early elections only allowed white dudes to vote, so I'm not sure that's something we Americans really want to get into. Just saying. Um, but we actually have quite a bit of company when it comes to peaceful transitions. I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. I mean, I think what's really cool about this is that this is one of the few things that has persisted in American politics since basically the beginning. The vast majority of our transitions have gone very smoothly. The Bush to Obama transition was famously good. I mean, the Bushes may have their flaws, and they certainly made some policy and wartime missteps, but when you read about how he treated the Obamas when they took over the White House, it certainly becomes a lot easier to understand why they treat each other like family even now. Two days after the 2008 election, President Bush addressed staff members about the transition, and he said, ensuring that this transition is as smooth as possible is a priority for the rest of my presidency. We face economic challenges that will not pause to let a new president settle in. This will also be America's first wartime presidential transition in four decades. We're in a struggle against violent extremists determined to attack us, and they would like nothing more than to exploit this period of change to harm the American people. So over the next 75 days, all of us must ensure that the next president and his team can hit the ground running. And we'll talk about this a little bit later on. The part about how violent extremists would love to exploit the transition to harm us is not mere conjecture. This is the most chaotic period in the U.S. government, and our enemies do know that. But I do want to highlight what made that transition so good, because it really helps set the context for why this current period in our politics is so messed up. Bush hosted Obama at the White House on November 10, 2008, making him the second president in history to meet with his successor within a week of the election. During that event, Bush discussed the ongoing financial crisis and his desire to save the big three automakers. The Great Recession had begun in 2007, and a cascading effect in the housing market had led to a severe lack of liquid funds for most Americans. Like, that's, whew, that is such an understatement. And millions of people around the world. Um, I, after that meeting, the Bush White House made sure that Obama was regularly briefed about the developments in handling the recession, 
so that Obama knew what to expect on day one and could devote his energy to handling it, not desperately cramming to understand what was happening. An incoming president has over 4,000 political appointments to government positions to make. 4,000. The Bush administration took over six months to make those appointments and fill those vacancies, many of which were national security positions. The Intelligence Reform and Terrorist Prevention Act of 2004 included rules that prevent lengthy spin-up times from occurring again, and Obama's team was actually able to obtain more than 100 security clearances to facilitate filling these positions. These investigations were fast-tracked, with a large team handling them to ensure that they occurred on time. Both the Office of Management and Budget and the Office of Personnel Management split that burden of facilitating these clearances. I want to talk about this. Let me remind our audience of something here. The transition period clocks in at about two months and some change. The majority of our listeners here will have no context to understand what a monumental task it is to get one security clearance approved in two months, let alone more than 100. So allow me to elucidate the matter. My entire application process for the United States Secret Service took about 14 months from submitting the application to job offer. In that time, they began my security clearance process, but I didn't actually receive my clearance until six months after I started. That is 20 months total. The entirety of my training, I actually only had a, a temporary clearance, as it were. Now, this is admittedly a bit of an outlier. All right. I was not the only one who had a higher on process that took that long, um, but there were others that, that were shorter. However, I know firsthand that it can take six months or more for one person to obtain their clearance just on average. Part of that is because the gears of government grind very slow and many many different groups and individuals work together to complete a clearance investigation. But, but part of that is also just due to the fact of the overwhelming amount of data that has to be processed for a clearance to be issued. They are not granted lightly. I mean, shoot, at one point, it looked like I wouldn't be able to get mine because I had pirated music as a kid. Like... <laughs> I, I downloaded some albums. Now, I got lucky, I guess, because it was before the whole Napster fiasco oh, and the court case and everything. So technically, I hadn't broken any existing laws. But still, I was, I was answering questions about things I had done in like early high school. Just, just pointing out that it is a very involved process. So the, the Bush administration fast-tracking over 100 clearances in a little over two months is the closest thing to a modern-day miracle that I can think of. <laughs> like, that is insane. I can't, even, I can't even remember half of what I did in high school. Like, hey, that's... turns out I couldn't either. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's fair. That's fair. They're All like, right. hey... What about such and such? And I was like, I'm sorry, what? When did that happen? They're like, oh, it's right here. Oh, okay. Didn't realize anybody was writing that down. Wow, yeah. Whew. Remember, kids, there's always a witness. 
just always just keep that in mind (laughs) (laughs) right so so those security clearances were an absolute miracle and then Every new official that was named by Obama met with their counterpart in the Bush administration, not for brunch, but for in-depth discussions about the issues that the new administration was going to face. Mid-level Bush national security staff began their briefings of Obama officials after Thanksgiving, and National Security Council staff supplemented the numerous meetings with 40 memoranda for Obama and his team, along with contingency plans for various scenarios. During this period, Obama was also receiving what's called the President's Daily Brief. This is a summary of critical intelligence about a wide range of issues, foreign and domestic, so that the President has the appropriate context to understand what's happening in the world and make decisions. Once the incoming national security team was announced in early December, each of these officials were cleared to receive those briefings, and the intelligence community provided two dozen briefings in Washington for at least 54 incoming officials and advisors between November 21 and January 6. So let's be really clear about this. At this time, that was absolutely unprecedented. Not only the sheer number of briefings, but the amount of incoming officials and advisors involved They had never seen that kind of thing before. And it was only made possible because Obama was given such a long runway and an early start to pick his team, which in turn was only possible because of Bush's commitment to making this transition smooth, efficient, and above all, beneficial to the safety and security of the American people. It really is the golden standard now. And so now that we've talked about a great transition... Let's hit on some not-so-great ones. There are three, there are, there are probably more. There are three uh, transitions that really stood out to me when I was researching this topic that I want to discuss because they hold a lot of important lessons for what is happening today. The first one was in 1800, the second one was 1876, and then the final one in 2000. So let's hit on this 1800 one. The the transition that occurred in 1800, technically 1801, I guess, is notable because it is the first peaceful transition of power from one party to another. The transition was in many ways very similar to the one we're experiencing today. The Democrat-Republican Party won control over both the presidency and Congress, and both they and their opposition, the Federalist Party, felt the foundational principles of democracy were on the line as they fought each other. Now, this transition has come to be known as the Revolution of 1800. However, unlike the American Revolution some 24 years prior, this one was comparably peaceful. Now, as we go forward, I want you all to remember that we call the Revolution of 1800 peaceful compared to the American Revolution. That context, it turns out, is just so important. (laughs) I mean, at least there was no bloodshed. That's not even true, actually. There was a little bloodshed, but at least there wasn't more bloodshed. (laughs) Thomas Jefferson would describe the election of 1800 that made him president as a revolution in the principles of our government, as real as that of 1776 was in its form. (laughs) So... A very, very short history of the parties. The name Federalist was used by Americans uh, who petitioned for the replacement of the Articles of Confederation, which were the 
first U.S. Constitution adopted during the Revolutionary War with the Constitution that we use today. Federalists were basically the first, quote-unquote, constitutional originalists because they wrote the Constitution. Uh, <laughs> they were responsible for getting the Constitution ratified in each state and then setting up new government after ratification in 1788. Those opposed to the new Constitution were called the Anti-Federalists. Naturally. Really, American movement names haven't really developed terribly much in 244 years. Anti-Federalist, Anti-Fascist. Hey, if it ain't broke, right? So, uh, the third party was, uh, of many, was the Democratic Republican Party. And it was established by Jefferson and uh, James Madison in the early 1790s as they began having doubts about the administration of the new government. They felt that it was already leading the country to adopt policies and forms of government that were not truly Republican and small-r Republican, and therefore risked undoing the achievements of the Revolution and the Constitution. So all this to say that the parties basically all thought that they were the only correct leadership for the fledgling United States, and everyone else was going to ruin it. <laughs> so the more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh, much as we see today, partisan infighting and warfare divided not only the politicians, but families and friends. Uh, these party-line schisms actually drove Jefferson and James Madison, who were once revolutionary collaborators, into a deep rivalry as they ran against each other for the presidency. If you'll recall from session 9, where we talked about the Electoral College, the election of 1796 led to John Adams of the Federalist Party winning the presidency and Jefferson of the Democratic-Republican Party the vice presidency. Then in 1800, another constitutional crisis occurred as Jefferson tied Aaron Burr for the presidency and they were both the same party before finally he pulled out the W due to a messy vote in the House of Representatives that almost destroyed the country. Uh, so, listen... The end of the 1700s, it was wild, y'all. There's a reason we're bringing it up again, okay? It sounds a bit familiar, don't it? Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, that was a really contentious time. And when Jefferson was talking about it, he said, Public discussions, whether relating to men, measures, or opinions, were conducted by the parties with animosity, a bitterness, and an indecency which had never been exceeded. All of the resources of reason and of wrath were exhausted by each party in support of its own and to prostrate the adversary opinions. I mean, that's fancy that's talk so... for basically what's going on right now. Yeah, seriously. We're going to make everybody that's not us look like fools. That's, yep. That is what that meant. <laughs> exactly. In the 1790s, the young United States was already embroiled in foreign policy crises revolving around the superpowers of the time, which were Britain and France. Immigrants, therefore, drew hostility as they were seen to be supporting whichever party was considered the rival party to the observer. Certain founding fathers stopped talking to each other altogether, with Jefferson and Washington cutting off contact so thoroughly that Jefferson didn't even attend Washington's funeral. <sighs> and I'll remind you here that Jefferson was vice president at the time. He, I mean, that's petty, right? Like, that's hashtag petty. Like, that's, that's the definition of petty. 
Yeah. John Adams, the president that Jefferson served with, didn't even attend Jefferson's inauguration ceremony, likely because Jefferson didn't invite him. And lest you think that we're being a little on the nose with the comparisons, just wait. It gets worse. I mean, better. At the time, this the is capital, so crazy. I'm sorry. No, it's I just no, it's too I much. I love this, but it's buckle up because it's about to get real. Right? It's yeah. like I don't know. Why are we living in the Jersey Shore of American politics? I don't even know. Time is a closed loop. Everybody, <sighs> sorry. Tell, tell us more about this time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, at that time, the Capitol was located in Philadelphia, and it was in the grips of a deadly yellow fever epidemic. Actually, we talked about this yellow fever epidemic a few episodes ago in yeah. our systemic racism in healthcare episode. Uh, so, get this, right? Even the proper way to combat the disease became a partisan issue. Gas. Gas. <laughs> I've never heard of that before. And also, Americans were dealing with recurrent financial panics during this decade. There were sex scandals. There were violent taxpayer revolts that the federal government suppressed with guns. Violent public protests against the government. Parties would attempt, attempt to weaken other parties by prosecuting their members for seditious libel. Members of the media, especially perceived partisan media, were harassed. Fights broke out in the Capitol between rival groups formed along party lines. The only thing that the 1790s had that we don't is a fight between congressmen on the floor of the House of Representatives. Although I am still holding out hope for Ocasio-Cortez. And watching some of the hearings that I've been watching this week, I could see it happening. Ted Cruz looks ready to throw some hands. I, I would pay for that, actually. <laughs> we could put that on pay-per-view. And I guarantee we could have the na- the deficit paid off. Yeah, <laughs> just like... easily. Easily. So to sum up the political climate of the 1790s, look around you. You're pretty much living in it. And as you might gather, the politics of the time were not the stuffy affairs we sometimes tend to imagine as we suffer through another history lesson in elementary school. No offense to our teachers, but... I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I didn't have any idea how crazy this period was in American politics. No. I feel like maybe I would have paid more attention to our founding fathers getting caught in sex scandals and beating each other up than maybe I did in history. And Maybe. Maybe. Maybe just a little bit. Maybe. I don't know. And despite all of that contention, despite that contention continuing into the 1800s, leading to Hamilton being killed in a duel with Aaron Burr in 1804, the Democratic-Republican victory of Jefferson in 1800 was never seriously threatened with reversal. The vote, the election, the system held. The fighting lost some of its fire as Jefferson's party became increasingly satisfied of their victory, and Federalists became increasingly resigned to it. Despite the climate and the drama, power passed relatively peacefully relatively from one party to relatively. another. And though they may not have felt it at the time, those politicians were establishing an expectation for all of our future leaders. And that expectation has kept our country together through many, many trials, like the one that happened in 1876. 1876? Right? What could possibly have happened in 1876? <laughs> well, I'm bringing up 1876 and what happened here because it's a prime example of how contested elections can reshape America for decades to come. 
What you need to know about the election of 1876 is that once again, the United States was divided. Not as literally as it had been just a decade previously during the Civil War, but still pretty darn split. Support for Reconstruction was fading, and the Republican Party had dominated the federal government for almost a full decade thanks to the newly enfranchised African-American male voting population. <laughs> and a severe economic downturn that began in 1873. Unemployment was high, the post-war economic recovery of the South had crawled to a stop, and to top it all off, Ulysses S. Grant's presidential administration was accused of massive corruption, meaning that the Democrats had finally won control of the House of Representatives in 1874. And these were the conditions on the ground when a Democratic candidate emerged with a popular vote lead in the 1876 election. However, 19 electoral votes from four states were in dispute. Congress had to convene to settle the election. Amidst this backdrop of struggle and ongoing racial tensions, Democratic Governor of New York Samuel Tilden gained a lead of more than 260,000 in the popular vote, which is not a lot for 1876. Yeah, that's a heck of a lot. Yeah. However, due to the breakdown of the Electoral College, this only afforded him 184 electoral votes. And guess how many you needed to claim the presidency in 1876? I'm going to just say it. How many, Robin? 185. Yeah. <laughs> 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 oh, man. You know, he's just he just sat there looking at that number like, come on. Right? Like, can Sorry. we just... Just nudge it a little bit. The results of Louisiana, Florida, South Carolina, and one elector from Oregon were all disputed. By this time, most of the states ran on the winner-take-all system of assigning electors, so Tilden just needed one of those states, or even just the elector in Oregon, to secure victory over his Republican opponent, Gov Governor Rutherford B. Hayes of Ohio. Hayes, in the meantime, needed every single state to win. In what may seem to be a predictable outcome, both candidates claimed victory. Who could have seen that coming? I know, right? And because there was no real way to resolve this particular issue in the Constitution, the Democrat-controlled House of Representatives and the Republican-controlled Senate agreed to create a bipartisan electoral commission with five representatives, five senators, and five Supreme Court justices. The breakdown was supposed to be seven Republicans, seven Democrats, and one Independent. But the Independent was Supreme Court Justice David Davis, not a made-up name. And Davis dropped out because he was offered a Senate seat, and a Republican replaced him, leaving the balance 8-7 in favor of the Republicans. As one might predict, without any strenuous thought, this meant that every single contested state was awarded to Hayes in 1877, giving him the presidency by a single electoral vote. However, as one may not predict, the Democrats did not object to his winning. Why, you may ask? Well, surprise, surprise, it turns out that backroom deals have always been a staple of politics. Even with the presidency undecided, representatives from both sides were working to hash out the Compromise of 1877, which is possibly one of the most toxic agreements in American history. The Compromise of 1877 was deceptively simple on its face. 
Democrats agreed to accept the Hayes victory and to respect the civil and political rights of African Americans on the condition that Republicans withdraw all federal troops from the South, thus consolidating Democratic control in the region. Hayes would also have to agree to name a leading Southerner to his cabinet and to support federal aid for the Texas and Pacific Railroad. To make a long, sad story a little shorter, but definitely not less sad, the Compromise of 1877 essentially ended the Reconstruction era. Southern Democrats predictably actively worked against the civil and political rights of blacks. Hayes kept his promise to allow the South more independence in governing itself, leading to widespread and increasing disenfranchisement of black voters. As soon as the late 1870s, Jim Crow laws began to be passed, dictating race relations for the next 80 plus years. Obviously, there's more here than just a rough transition that damaged America, but we're bringing it up here to highlight how deep divisions combined with selfish political thinking can combine to absolutely undermine everything that America stands for. It might seem idealistic to ask it if the politicians of the time had been thinking long term about what the U.S. stood for and not about securing political power for themselves, then maybe some of the major issues that we see in our society today wouldn't exist. Maybe. We'll never know. Um, this period of history is so interesting to me because this is why you'll hear so many people say that Democrats were actually the party that, like, wanted to keep slavery, mm -hmm. that worked to suppress the rights of African Americans, and and um, and why Republicans are actually uh, the more, I don't know, moral of the parties. I think that's a ludicrous argument to make about any party, right? Moral, um, but. <laughs> I, and it's something we'll probably talk about in a different episode. The Southern Democrats, especially, or, or Dixiecrats, as mm -hmm. they are sometimes known, um, were not what you would call Democrats of today. Right. This is also where the argument about how the parties flipped. Yeah. Uh, this is kind of where that came in. Um, more on that later. It's just sometimes I just wanted to make it clear that we, we, we're not... Because if you look at the parties of today and then listen right. to what we're talking about, it might seem like we're getting the names backwards, that the Democrats wanted something right. that we said the Republicans wanted and vice versa. And that's just historically, that's not accurate. It's just a quirk, I suppose, of how the names sort of morphed with the... Uh, the people that controlled them. Yep. Yeah. So. We definitely should go back and talk more about that big shift, though, or even just like a history of all the, the political parties in the U.S., because it's really fascinating. Yeah. It's really cool stuff, which, gosh, if 18-year-old me just heard current me say that, he'd be like, who are you? <laughs> uh. You obviously <laughs> didn't pirate enough albums when you were younger. You're so Obviously. stuffy. Such a square. So the last one I want to talk about super quick was a more recent transition that dramatically impacted public life. Uh, and mainly because I'm not sure a lot of people know about how the 2000 transition from Bill Clinton to uh, 
uh, George W. Bush set up one of the most devastating terrorist attacks in history. Yeah, the dispute over votes in Florida set back the Bush administration enough in their coming up to speed that it may be at least partially responsible for why the terrorist attacks on September 11th, 2001 were successful. So very quickly, since I have realized while we were recording this, that we likely have members in our audience who were born post 9-11. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to sit with that for a minute. Whew. Yeah. Welcome. We're glad you're here. But if you don't remember, or if you do, the results of the 2000 presidential race between Democratic candidate Al Gore and Republican candidate George W. Bush came down to the most onion skin thin margin in history. That's right. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. Uh, <laughs> if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back to our last episode. <laughs> Without getting too deep into it, the initial vote tally in Florida had Bush leading Gore by roughly 1,700 votes on November 8th. This triggered an automatic recount because the vote difference was within half a percent. The recount ended with Bush only having a 317 vote margin. So Gore then asked for a manual recount in four counties as allowed under Florida law. This request triggered a fight between Democrats and Republicans about the deadlines for when the recount needed to be finished. So on November 26th, Florida Secretary of State Catherine Harris certified that Bush had won the election by a 537 vote margin. However, Gore then sued Harris because the recounts hadn't been completed yet. So on December 8th, the Florida Supreme Court sided with Gore and ordered all statewide undervote ballots be tallied. So an undervote ballot is a ballot where the, the vote for president hadn't been registered on it for one reason or another. So this is when the term hanging chad <laughs> entered into the U.S. lexicon, lexicon, and it has haunted us ever since. Florida used a system wherein the voter marked their choice by using a, mach uh, a machine to physically punch a hole in the card. So if the machines weren't calibrated correctly or they become dull or the voter entered their card wrong or any number of a wide range of problems, they wouldn't actually fully punch out the choice resulting in either a dimple next to the choice or only a partially disconnected piece of paper. So here's something funny, by the way. If it was dimpled, but not hanging, it was actually called a pregnant chad, uh, which I just think is fun to say. For some reason, that phrase didn't stick, probably because I wasn't in charge of talking about it all the time, because that's all I would say. The hanging chad was the one where part of it had already been punched out, but it wasn't fully disconnected. So Bush immediately appealed the Florida Supreme Court decision to the United States Supreme Court, which then ordered the recount to stop on December 9th, 2000, until it could hear arguments. Now, here's where we run into a timetable problem. According to federal law, uh, 3 U.S.C. Section 5, known as the Safe Harbor Law, a state has up until six days before the Electoral College members meet in person to determine which electors it will send. 
which basically means they have up until basically a week before the electoral votes are cast in person to determine who gets the electors in their state. The deadline in 2000 was December 12th. Arguments were set to be held on December 11th, which meant that the court had one day to reach a decision, and then Florida would only have the remaining hours after the decision to decide which electors to send. To make... I, I'm trying to shorten this as much as possible, but it's it's such a complex situation. The decision ultimately came down along party lines with a 5-4 court saying that Bush's rights had been violated and that there was no way to remedy the problem before the safe harbor deadline had passed on December 12th. So therefore, the certified results that Bush had won in in Florida stood and Bush took the presidency. Basically, the Supreme Court decision was like, well, time's up, so I guess democracy goes out the window. Screw it. Don't count the votes. Bush, you got it. God. That might be opinion. (laughs) Maybe a little bit. Um, Maybe a little bit. Actually, I'm pretty sure... I might be Ginsburg's dissenting opinion said something along those lines. That That would not surprise me, even a little bit. Yeah. I didn't have time to go back and read the the whole thing. So anyway, that recap is over. The important part for our discussion today is the timeline. So notice that the lawsuits and contention continued through mid-December. This means that Bush couldn't begin his transition until mid-December, which essentially gave him a mere 39 days, I think, to get his administration stood up. Now, this might seem like a lot of time. It's only a month less, basically, than a, a president elect would normally get. But as we'll discuss here in a bit, there is a lot that happens in between election day and inauguration day. So importantly, the 9-11 commission noted that given that a presidential election in the United States brings wholesale change in personnel, this loss of time that Bush suffered hampered the new administration in identifying, recruiting, clearing, and obtaining Senate confirmation of key appointees. The new administration did not have its deputy cabinet officers in place until the spring of 2001, and the critical sub-cabinet officials were not confirmed until the summer, if then. In other words, the new administration, like others before it, did not have its team on the job until at least six months after it took office. Now, I'll reiterate, it's not that the Bush administration was unique in not having many of these critical officials in place until about six months post-inauguration. It's that in combination with the delay in determining the official winner of the election. The shortened Bush transition hampered the new administration in identifying, recruiting, clearing, and obtaining Senate confirmation of key appointees. So that basically left the country vulnerable and ill-prepared in the national security arena. So though Bush and his staff were generally aware of the threat that al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden posed to the United States, and and Clinton, I believe, did talk with the Bush administration about this, the import of the information and the focus of the problem was one of many amidst a crush of other important events. So it's one of those things that kind of got lost in the sauce. 
because of this, the commission advised since a catastrophic attack could occur with little or no notice, we should minimize as much as possible the disruption of national security policymaking during the change of administrations by accelerating the process for national security appointments. We think the process could be improved significantly so transitions can work more effectively and allow new officials to assume their new responsibilities as quickly as possible. The importance of highlighting this information is to help draw contrast between what has been determined as being best for the safety and security of American citizens and what is currently happening. As a national security professional, I am not I'm not exaggerating too much when I say we're kind of in a nightmare scenario right now. And the disarray that has been coming down from the top has... <laughs> this is the only time trickle down works. It has trickled down all the way to the bottom. I, you know, I don't know if my boss is going to be the director of, of my organization tomorrow. I just don't know. Uh, and I cannot stress how how much that hampers what we do because y you can only plan so many contingencies, you know? And when, when you're investing all this energy into what if this, what if this, what if this, what if this, none of them really get the focus that they need. And I'm just honestly pretty low level in the in the grand scheme of things. So I can only imagine how much worse it is all the way up at the top. Yeah, it's I mean anyway. I, I'm not even in any of these things and it's it's incredibly concerning to me just as your average citizen of the Mid South. I mean, just the idea that something as complicated and important as a presidential transition seems to be being treated with such disregard. I mean, it's it's kind of shocking. And it, and it made me wonder, actually, as I was, as we were researching this episode, like, it feels like no emphasis is being put on this. But are there rules? Surely for something as intricate as a presidential transition, it would make sense to have some sort of legislative governance on the process. And it turns out that we do, right? We have the Presidential Transition Act of 1963. The act was passed by Congress with strong bipartisan support because, like we've mentioned before, quote, any disruption occasioned by the transfer of the executive power could produce results detrimental to the safety and well-being of the United States and its people. Since 1963, it has been amended five times. So we've got the Presidential Transitions Effectiveness Act of 1988, the Presidential Transition Act of 2000, the Pre-Election Presidential Transition Act of 2010, <laughs> the Presidential Transitions Improvement Act of 2015, and the Presidential Transition Act of 2019. And all of these basically have just added layers and layers of complexity to the original act as new and important things become a part of the presidential transition process. 
the act and its amendments basically establish the timelines and the processes that facilitate this incredibly complex event. It requires the General Services Administration to provide space and support services to presidents and vice presidents elect, plus some pre-election support. And it requires the White House and federal agencies to begin transition planning processes well before Election Day. In fact, I was really surprised that the General Services Administration plays such a pivotal role in a presidential transition. That's the organization that's basically in charge of making sure that federal buildings don't fall down. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's yeah. basically like like the federal custodial services. Um, so to find out that they don't 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 let them hear you say that. GSA peeps, love you. You guys are great. <laughs> Thank you for all the yeah. hard work you do. Edit me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I was really surprised to find out that they do play such a pivotal role. And, and and who better to play that role than an organization that is wholly dedicated to preserving and maintaining the important foundation that is our federal buildings? Did I fix it? I think so. Okay. Yeah. Totally natural. <laughs> so the, the law requires that, that the GSA administrator name a senior career official to serve as the federal transition coordinator and coordinate transition planning across agencies. I'm going to make a little note here. What I'm about to say career official and appointed official so many times in the next few minutes. The difference there is that a career official is somebody who is hired into their job and is not subject to political appointment versus an appointed mm -hmm. official who may or may not be one of the 4,000 people that is changed out every time we transition presidents. Yeah. The shorthand is career official means job security. <laughs> yes. So. Yes. And so it is actually really important that this federal transition coordinator is a career official uh, because they hold so much responsibility when it comes to transitioning between presidents that it, it would be a significant disservice to have that person uh, subject to political party alliances, to yeah. put it politely. <laughs> <laughs> so we very, mentioned it just a couple good. of minutes ago that, that that organization oversees the provision of space and support services to presidents elect and their teams. It also pays the expenses related to creating and implementing those teams. And it serves as a liaison between those transition teams and the federal government. It also does a lot of things, guys. It does a lot. Also a lot. compiles and maintains a transition directory with comprehensive information on the officers, the organizational structure, and the responsibilities of each federal agency. Basically, the GSA is crucial to that hit-the-ground-running goal. Oh, yeah. Also, it provides support to outgoing presidents as they depart the White House. Like, they do a little bit of everything here. We'll talk more in just a minute about what the candidate and then the president-elect is responsible for as part of this transition process. But let's stop here for a minute and talk about this re requirement under the Presidential Transition Act for agencies to begin preparing for the shift. Before we started researching this process, I definitely thought that all of this would be far more decentralized than it actually turns out to be. But the Transition Act establishes a pretty clear and organized cadence for getting all of this work done. So to start, there are some processes that are just considered standing or ongoing. For example, there's the Standing Agency Transition Directors Council, 
which includes the GSA's Federal Transition Coordinator and the Office of Management and Budget's Deputy Director for Management, senior agency officials responsible for transition activities and transition representatives for the major candidates. And then we move to a year before the election. And a year before the election, the GSA produces a report that summarizes basically all modern transition activities and relevant resources. Anything that currently is happening or should be happening in relation to this transition. The, it's the, the, the roadmap, yeah. basically. And then six months before an election, the president must establish a White House Transition Coordinating Council that is chaired by a senior employee of the Executive Office of the President and includes other high-level officials like cabinet officers, directors of the Office of Management and Budget and the Office of Government Ethics and the Office of Personnel Management, the Administrator of the General Services Administration, the Archivist of the United States, and a transition representative for each of the major party candidates. This council provides guidance to agencies on the transition process and facilitates communications between the administration and the transition teams. In that six months, the Agency Transition Directors Council also begins to meet on a regular basis, and each agency must designate a senior career official to take charge of the transition planning, to prepare briefing materials and ensure that appropriate succession plans are in place so that when political appointees leave, experienced officials are ready to step in until new appointees arrive. And also the Federal Transition Coordinator begins reporting to the Senate via different committees on how these transition preparations are going. Then, no later than September 1st, the GSA establishes understandings with the eligible candidates about the support services to be offered. So in September, the GSA is already working with both of the primary candidates to discuss what support services they could be offered. By September 15th, the heads of agencies need to ensure that all of their succession plans are in place for all of their non-career positions. By October 1st, memorandums of understanding between the GSA and the candidate transition teams are negotiated. And then by November 1st, the Agency Transition Directors Council ensures that all of their transition briefings materials are ready. So, I mean, they're the, they're the stage managers of this whole elaborate dance. Everything that happens goes through them, which uh, might explain why the GSA is at the center of so much attention right now. Oh, yes. So we'll, we'll get into that. In just yeah, we'll talk about that. So in addition to these more practical elements, the Act also provides essential guidance on national security measures. First, it directs the FBI and other agencies responsible for conducting background investigations to conduct those expeditiously with the goal of providing appropriate clearance to those who are, who are identified for high-level national security positions before Inauguration Day. Uh, secondly, the law requires that the president-elect be given a classified summary of threats to national security, covert military operations, and pending decisions on the possible use of military force as soon as possible after Election Day. That's part of what he's getting in those, those presidential daily briefs, the PDBs. The, the long and short of it is, there are a lot of people working for a very long time to ensure that things go smoothly while we're in the really awkward process of switching presidents. 
now that I think about it, it's basically two out of the four years that a president is in office, the GSA is like working on transition stuff. That's They're either bringing them in yep. or getting ready to take them out. Yep. Uh, that sounds very assassiny. Getting ready to <laughs> <laughs> help them help them transition into the next phase of life. That still sounds like they're killing. Them. It really does. <laughs> Just like, I can't make this one any better. Moving on. What happens if the result of the election is unclear? Like this year. Not really. It's super clear this year. I mean... <laughs> As far as we can tell, all of the prep work has been done, but the official processes are still in a bit of a standstill, all because of a letter. One key part of this transition is a letter from the head of the GSA that acknowledges the apparent winner of the election and allows for the release of funds, space, and access. So let's be super duper clear on this. It specifically is a letter to the apparent winner. Yep. That means the media projected winner, not the electoral college chosen winner necessarily, although the two are usually the same. In fact, I think they've always been the same. So it's not who the GSA administrator thinks the winner is. Right. It is who has been hailed as the apparent winner. This is critical. The current GSA administrator is Emily Murphy, and she refuses to sign such a letter, holding that the winner of the election is not yet clear, and therefore the transition process cannot begin. I gotta breathe for a second. I know. Because I don't wanna... <sighs> Many folks are... Quick, me, me, I am the one who is quick to jump in and criticize this decision. It is me. I am that person. However, some experts do agree with the idea of proceeding with caution here. In a Washington Post article, one attorney who served as GSA general counsel for Presidents Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush noted that he would also be uncomfortable allowing the transition to go ahead because issuing the letter releases funds that, if spent could not be recovered to use for the other candidates' team. This election, the budget for the transition is $9.9 million, which is a lot to you and me. It is nothing to the U.S. government, but it's a lot of money. And whatever funds are not used for the transition, especially in the case of an incumbent win, uh, they just go back into the general treasury. I'm just going to say, though, like... We hit on it earlier. Over 5 million votes. There is literally yeah. no path for Trump to win. He can overturn Pennsylvania, still loses. Right. I mean, and I'm going to stand hard on opinion here, too, and say that, like, so let's say we sign the letter and we get the Biden-Harris team all spun up. And somehow it turns out that President Trump is the winner of this election. He's the incumbent. Right? Yeah. Like this is how much this money is pocket change to the United States government. Whoa. And exactly. and so maybe we prepare a team that doesn't get used. But like what's the alternative? We don't prepare a team that's gonna have to go into 
oh, I don't know, a global pandemic and civil unrest well, and try to govern in that. the middle of it. Uh, a military drawdown in, in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, a potential bombing in Iran that the president keeps floating about bombing I- Iranian nuclear facilities. Uh, yes, um, a major um, arms deal. Uh, a major arms deal. It just so many... It's unconfirmed reporting, so don't don't take this as, as gospel truth right. or fact on our uh, that we that we uh, present or we try to present as our normal podcast, you know, meat and potatoes. Um, but there has now been a second official that has a White House official that's gone on background, so not disclosing their name, an anonymous source uh, uh, saying that. Trump has admitted out loud that his whole goal is to put is to is to cause as many fires as possible so that Biden has to spend all of his energy trying to put them out and that there's no way he can successfully do it because if he comes back to run in 2024 yep. he can point at that and be like hey you know let me save you this didn't happen when I was president which is, which would be, just, oh, I could. Uh, that's exactly mm. what we said in our last episode, too, right? All yeah. of this yeah. is not in an effort, at least in my opinion, my public relations trained opinion. This None of this is an effort to actually win the election. I mean, if that happened, cool. But all of this yeah. is a setup to make the Trump administration look like the savior of America and make the Biden administration Biden look bad. like. A disaster. I mean, and that, we didn't even talk about it in in this episode, but when we're talking about historical transitions, we know that that has happened before, right? Presidents, outgoing presidents have tanked the United States economy in order to reinforce the idea that the other party would not be able to run the economy well. So it's not unprecedented. No, but it's, I mean, it's playing, it's playing with American lives for political capital and it is disgusting. Exactly. That's all I'll say about that. Um, anyway, keep that in track. Uh, keep that in mind as we progress to the next couple of months. And um, seriously, get on the horn with your senators, with your representatives. Twist. Bring their necks. Because what I'm afraid of is that this CARES Act is going to, to expire on December 11th. And it's going to leave millions of Americans without any source of of safety net or income. Like it looks like I'm going to be sent home probably the end of this week, maybe next week because of the uncontrolled coronavirus. Oh, lovely. Explosion. And so they'll probably, you know, get us out of the office. But after December 11th, I won't get paid because I'm a contractor. So. Oh, snap. Yeah. So, yeah, and it's all for political uh, expediency, for gain, and it makes me sick to my stomach. Exactly. So, talk to your representatives, folks. Moving on. The Presidential Transition Act does provide a function for private donors to fund transitions through an organization separate from the campaign that qualifies under Section 501c4 of the IRS Code, 
<laughs> basically, a candidate can transfer funds from their election campaign and also raise donations up to $5,000 per person or organization. And it would appear that this is what the Biden-Harris team is doing during this time through their organization, PT Fund, Inc. Uh, the many agency review teams at work right now are full of participants who are basically donating their time and others are being paid through these fundraising donations. Actually, this is a great place for us to talk about the president-elect's team and what it's responsible for. So the responsibility of the administration-elect, the, the president-elect's transition team. Yeah. Yeah. What they do? <laughs> they, they're a pretty cool group. They're unique. In the approximately yeah. 75 days between Election Day and Inauguration Day, the president-elect and his or her team must essentially build a government. They nominate officials for top administration posts and uh, fill the other presidentially appointed positions. As we said, that is over 4,000, basically roughly 4,100 positions that they have to appoint. They familiarize themselves with more than 100 federal agencies, including key staff, policy concerns, organizational challenges, uh, how the agencies will fit into the, the new administration's agenda. They develop detailed policy plans, including priorities for the first 100 days of the administration and drafts of executive orders to be signed following inauguration. Um, that first 100 days is really interesting to me. I didn't know this until Obama's second term, I think, is the, the like 100 days, maybe it's Trump's first term, or his only term. That, <laughs> that, that first 100 days is like a benchmark for presidents, like to sort of like determine... Huh. you know, what kind of president they're going to be and what they've done, which is, it seems weird to me. Like you have a hundred days to fill, fulfill your promises or else. That's not exactly what it is, but like that is, that is traditionally when we start checking in on the administration to see where they are. Uh, yeah. And then the, the, the team also engages with members of Congress, with foreign governments and other critical constituencies that they will need to work with during their administration. I know this year, uh, Biden's team is reaching out to a lot of major companies that are responsible or going to be responsible for administering uh, the vaccine, for getting the infrastructure set up for that. Right. Um, and he's having to do that. Basically, he, the companies are basically having these meetings with him out of good faith, understanding that, you know, he won the election, right. but he doesn't necessarily have the authority yet to, to talk with them and make plans. It's really interesting balance there. Um, and it's kind of funny because he's getting yeah. security briefings right now, but it's not from the government. It's from national security professionals, like, yeah, contractors, but more like um, consultants. The people who, who, who make their money, right. you know, breaking this down and explaining it to people, uh, which is not traditionally how it's done, but it's a really clever workaround. And whoever thought of that up needs a raise. It really is. In all reality, it is the, this transition is the period in which a candidate becomes a president. So... One of the critical things they do is set up agency review teams. One of the first things the incoming president 
does is designate a review team for each federal agency or group of agencies. So we're talking hundreds of people. These teams are made up of experts in their field, and their primary purpose is to work with current agency employees to collect critical information the incoming administration will need to make key policy decisions about those agencies when it takes office. Um, so this includes stuff like budget and personnel information and key initiatives, stuff like that. Um, the Biden-Harris team has already listed their agency review teams on their transition website, uh, which I didn't actually know. Um, so if anybody would be interested in seeing what those teams look like, the, the composition of those teams, um, and just how many people are involved in this, you can actually go to their, uh, their transition website and look that up, which I think is really cool, and I'm going to do that. Yeah, it'll be, uh, it's listed in the, the references of our show notes. Um, I will just point out that as I was scanning these, these agency review teams, I was struck by the number of teams that are led by, and I'm making assumptions here, don't at me, people who would appear to be women, given the name that they use in the listing. It was really, really, really encouraging to me to go through these lists in fields that you would not typically expect, thanks to the patriarchy, mm. to see women in leadership roles in. Um, so that's really great. I'm excited about that yeah. because representation I, matters. Yeah. yeah. So on, on that note, I heard go, a really interesting um, analysis of why people of color, minority populations, women uh, voted for Joe Biden, who's this old white straight dude, you know? And it's basically because... Uh, America is bigoted and it's going to take an old straight white dude putting not old, not straight, not white, not dudes in power, getting them in, into positions of power so that they can, so that they can, uh, right. you know, I hate to use the phrase prove themselves, but so that they can actually have a position in this administration and in our government People recognize that and basically voted for him to leverage his position of privilege, which I thought was a really clever 4D chess move. I don't, I hate that phrase, but uh, I do. It's just, <laughs> but, uh, that, that breakdown uh, provides a lot of insight right. into who voted for Biden and why. I thought that was really cool. Another thing that this super awesome transition team is responsible for is those political appointments, right? We talked about it. We've said the number two, three, four times now, 4,000 political appointments in the United States government that transition with every single president, at least in, in some way or another. Um, this, this policy, this process of pre-inauguration political appointments has existed in its current form more or less since about 1961. The Brookings Institution describes it as a period marked by ambiguity in which there's great uncertainty about the procedures for recruiting and vetting and selecting and approving nominees. The president-elect's aides are zealously searching for the right people to join the new administration. And during this time, most presidents-elect choose their cabinet members and maybe a few other nominees for prominent positions, like, for example, the ambassador to the United Nations. These are really fairly personal choices that are made during this pre-inauguration period. But this transition team has so many appointments to try to fill, and some of them require confirmation in Congress. 
So a lot of the work that has to be done to fill these appointments is actually done by the Office of Presidential Personnel after the inauguration, but also also as part of the transition. It's, it's like this really interesting overlap between the transitional phase mm. and these first hundred days. They kind of like lay the groundwork out so that as soon as they're in, they can start. Pop, 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 pop. Yeah, exactly. The big, the big nominations, the big appointments mm. will come first at the beginning so that all of that, that affirmation process can, can go through. And then, then it gets into the brass tacks of, of picking yeah, I was gonna the say, other. I was going to say probably 3,900 3, people. <laughs> 3, <900 people. laughs> The people whose names yeah. no one will probably know even two oh, weeks yeah. after they're appointed to their offices, but who play a really yeah. vital part in, in our government. Another thing that this transition team does is they engage in early policy planning. In fact, these teams effectively engage in policy making in all areas except for formal presidential action. They often prepare policy plans to pretty much their final form. They draft preliminary legislation and they even prepare executive orders for the president to sign into law immediately after inauguration. The Obama-Biden team was tasked with creating day one executive orders and about 30 of that pool of executive orders were eventually signed into law in some form. The Clinton-Gore team had a similar directive to develop actions the president could take right out of the box. Um, and we've already we've already heard previews of some of this policy planning action from the Biden-Harris team in the days immediately following the election. And news outlets are already reporting on what we can expect from the first 100 days of the administration. They're expecting pandemic-related legislation, a vaccine distribution plan, and for the United States to rejoin the World Health Organization. Biden says he's going to reverse some of Trump's immigration policies and focus on police and criminal justice reform. All of these potential and speculative, this is not official policy, actions are likely already in development and in the review process in order to have them ready to go when the yeah, president-elect takes one office. One of the big ones that keeps getting talked about uh, is uh, waiving uh, $50,000 of, of student loan debt via executive order, which would yeah, be super That's cool a big number. if I hadn't... Paid off ten thousand the last ten thousand dollars of my debt this year. <laughs> womp womp. No, um, it's fine. Well, I have no. Not. That's I. Um, I am of the generation that was encouraged to use their student loans as an income so that they yeah. could focus on college. So yeah. we'll be paying that off for a hot really? minute. No, that's uh, I. That's that's actually one of the reasons that. <laughs> right. um, I, I don't begrudge anybody who, who is able to get a significant or all of their student loans waived, um, even if I had to pay mine off, because so much of the, the like sales pitch for a student loan is like, you know, it allows you to focus on school and use it so you don't have to distract yourself with yeah. work. And I don't know, man, we're, we're telling 18 year olds to take out tens of thousands of dollars of debt and expect them to right. be able to make a good decision about that. Right. And then we saddle it with them for right. life. That little website that I had to click through that said, I understand that I'm basically yeah. taking out a mortgage to get this four year journalism degree. 
no, eighteen year old me was not processing that. It's so predatory. So yeah, I um, I am not part of that group of people who's like, well, I had to do it, and so should everybody else. Like, no, screw that. I hope everybody else has a better life than I had to have (laughs) to pay all of that off. Exactly. And even if I have to pay every dollar of mine off so that another generation yeah. of students will not have yeah. to go through that, I will gladly so, do it. Rabbit trail there. Um, no. That's good. So it's, the next section, it's called right too here. much power. What does that mean, Robin? Well, okay, so here's the deal. There are some scholars of this transition process that feel like we probably need to have more governance on what happens during this transition process. In his article for the Yale Law Review, Joshua Zoffer explains that candidates and their transition teams exist in a quasi-executive space where they enjoy some of the privileges of the executive, but without the explicit constitutional power. Um, They make executive branch nominations. The Appointments Clause of the Constitution vests the power to nominate executive branch officers clearly in the president, But in practice, transition teams begin announcing their nominations well before Inauguration Day. Congress might even hold confirmation hearings for the nominees before the new president takes office. Another way that they do this is that they almost make laws. The transition team does focus heavily on policy creation, and the fact that the president doesn't sign these orders until after Inauguration, Zoffer says, does not alter the reality that they are making policy. His primary concern is that because transition teams make policy decisions that are ultimately reflected in law, that these decisions warrant appropriate and careful safeguards like those that apply to policymaking within the walls of the West Wing. Another point he makes is that they make at least part of the president's budget. Uh, The president is required by law to submit a proposed budget to Congress between the first Monday in January and the first Monday in February. Since Inauguration Day is January 20th, that puts the new president on a pretty tight schedule. And, (laughs) right? (laughs) And because the current Office of of Management and Budget reports to the sitting president, but the consequences of the proposed budget will be borne by the new administration, it also presents a bit of a quandary. As a result, these transition teams have usually engaged in their own budget creation process alongside the OMB's official process. However, there have been a few exceptions where the outgoing administration has not allowed the necessary access. We may very well find ourselves in that position this year. Um, Additionally, kind of as an act of good faith, the last four administrations have also chosen to submit only a transition budget with baseline projections, which leaves the incoming administration the opportunity to submit the final budget. Um, So in no small way, then, the transition team's work is reflected in the president's final budget. And then they also, according to uh, our scholars, engage in a sort of foreign policy. So we know that the Logan Act prohibits anybody from making foreign policy without, quote, the authority of the United States, end quote, But presidents-elect have a long history of bucking that convention and actually engaging in conversation with other world leaders. Take, for example, President-elect Eisenhower, who within five hours of his election had already transmitted a message of friendship to France and who took a trip to South Korea during his transition period to meet with South Korean President 
Singman Rhee. Or, for example, President Carter. Some folks credit President Carter's ability to secure the release of American hostages in Iran to President-elect Reagan clearly stating that he would not give a better deal and that he would honor any deal that Carter had made. So some of these scholars, like Zoloff, have argued that this level of power calls for even stronger governance of the process, um, and they cite questionable appointees and out-of-the-ordinary access that characterize the current administration's transition as evidence that we really do probably need some more levels of oversight in there. Um, the assertion on that point is that whatever safeguards are necessary to protect the integrity of the White House processes are equally necessary as we transition a new administration into the White House. I suppose that that does right. make some level of sense. I mean, my instinct is that like, well, <laughs> so much of this stuff is only hypothetical mm -hmm. until Inauguration Day. Like they're making these policies, they're making these plans, but if for some reason they're not sworn in, right. none of them will take effect. I guess the question so, is, like, do you do the vetting process as they're building these potential policies, or do you, like, wait until the end to vet them and make sure that they do all the things that they need to do from a regulatory perspective? I don't know. But then also yeah. I think that probably... I mean, it's, it's easier to yeah. do it while you're building I also it. think that probably the people who are in charge of this in most normal presidential administrations have the knowledge and the skills hmm. to build that into their own process without regulation. The issue comes in when you have yeah. wild, wild west administrations who just kind of take things into their own hands. Do what they want. I do what I want. And yeah, that's something I was thinking about when you're talking about this is like so much of our transition process relies on basically acting yeah. like a good person. <laughs> to the new team coming in. So you're, I really don't feel like we're going to see something like a transition budget or, um, you know, the, the full, uh, access for Biden and his team to some of these administration, uh, resources and the, the help that they can offer, because I don't think we, I don't think we can expect fair play from, the Trump team. Right. It just, it's been four years. I haven't seen him do it yet. I don't have any faith that that's going to change in the next, what is it, like 59 right. days now. By the time this thing comes out, 54 um, or somewhere in that neighborhood. I just... I just, I don't feel like don't we're know. seeing the, the hallmarks of, of someone who is looking to play fair. Yeah. I, I mean... We're not. We're just not. It's if you're talking about bombing Iran's oh, nuclear, Lord. you know, sites, you're not thinking about playing fair. You're thinking about kicking over the sandcastle before you storm off. So. Fifty-four days, you said. Uh, somewhere in that by we'll, on Monday we'll when make this it. comes out, yeah, we'll make it fifty-four days. Anyway, <laughs> I think that's enough about this obviously we wanted to talk about this because there's a lot that's being discussed in the news that i know i didn't really have context for what it actually meant um so i thought it was and, and robin you thought it was also important to sort of do what we do and establish that context so you can you our audience can make an informed um 
decision or an informed uh, assessment of what's happening and what it really means. And, and you can recognize how out of the ordinary it is or how regular that is, uh, if anything normal ever happens <laughs> under this administration. I, I actually had a lot of fun researching this one, uh, even though we really got into some nitty gritty policy <laughs> stuff, which we are definitely getting into policy. It wouldn't be us if we didn't get in the weeds, um, though. <laughs> I know. I love it. So, yeah, I think it really helps highlight, you know, why what is happening now is significant. So even in years where, where there isn't a global pandemic, when there's not this... I don't even know if it's an undercurrent anymore. It's kind of like yeah. just a current <laughs> a wave of, of, of civil unrest. Um, when we, when we don't have documented evidence of attempts at foreign interference in our democratic, you know, functions and, and even in those normal years, there's a lot of work to be done. But the idea that we're experiencing a significant slow down at a time like this I and mean, we've already covered it there's just i cannot think of a, of any other outcome than there's going to be significant consequences yeah. for this which unfortunately i think is the plan i think i think right now we're witnessing a, an administration that is laying uh, as many landmines down as it can before it gets out and hopes that the incoming team just steps on all of them. Which, I mean, it's hard. It's hard not to feel overwhelmed by the idea that that the entire American populace is just kind of sitting here waiting for the consequences of two grown men in a fight for power. Like, we're just waiting for the consequences to rain down on us. But in reality, this is our opportunity to decide now what we're going to tolerate in the future, right? So if this is the case, if Mm. they're setting things up for another go at it in 2024, the next four years are our opportunity as a populace to stand up and say, look, we're not pawns and we won't be treated as pawns. We have expectations. We have standards for how we want this country to run. And we want it to transition like the like the uh, the Bush Obama transition. We want general good personness in our American politics, and we're not gonna stand for all these shenanigans. So um, don't be discouraged. Right. Just decide for yourself right now what you will and won't stand for, and then spend the next four years putting your foot down and making sure everybody knows it. Yeah. Remember when these games get played. The people who pay for it are Americans, not politicians. It's, it was, the Twin Towers were not full of politicians. Exactly. So. I think we need a shameless plug here. Robin, why don't you, yeah, hit us with the shameless plug and then I'll take us out with some good news. Bring the, bring the mood back up before we leave. Leave people with this their is where we transition week. to the excited voice, where we tell you we are on Instagram now. Yay! So we are. We're on Instagram now at Fireside Breakdowns, and uh, if you haven't already, we invite you to find us on Facebook as well. You can interact with us all over the social medias, mm. except on Twitter, uh, because 
Twitter's a lot, you guys. Twitter's just a lot. It's so much. It's such a time sink. Like, if you want to be anything on yes. Twitter, it's nonstop. I'm exactly. sorry. Well, in my day job, job, like, I have people coming to me all the time saying, I want to be on Twitter. And it's, like, my job to tell them you don't want to be on Twitter. I promise you don't want to be on Twitter. You sell baby food. You don't want to be on Twitter. <laughs> it's too much. It's too much. But anyway, so we are on Facebook. We are on Instagram. Fireside Breakdowns on both. We would absolutely love to hear from you. We would love to know what you think about presidential transitions. We would love to know what you think about the potential consequences of this transition. We would love to know if you think that this is all malarkey and that we should have been doing this entire episode on something like the... I can't even think of anything, because what is more timely than this? Nothing. But you'll probably think of something. I don't know. You probably will. Well, our, yes. our listeners Tell us will. what you think. We would love <laughs> to hear from you. Um, if you listen to our podcast on a platform that allows for reviews, we would greatly appreciate it if you would leave us a review. We have a handy-dandy little app that is linked on our Facebook page where you can click on a link, and it will take you to options for the most appropriate places for you to leave us a review. Those reviews help us out tremendously. Mm. Um, if you are not a podcaster, you got exactly, you have no idea how important reviews are to uh, how podcasts rank and who gets to see them. So if you enjoyed this, leave us a review. If you hated this, leave us it's a review telling so other people to listen because maybe they'll hate it as much as you. Yeah, yeah. Leave a hate review. Yeah, like all the stars, stars, but um, you can just... Say that other people so should bad. listen to it. And then if for some reason social media is just yeah. not your bag and you would like to send us an email, you can also do that at firesidebreakdowns at gmail.com. Oh, and if you don't listen on a platform that allows reviews, you can still leave us oh, a review yes. on our Facebook Yes, that page. would be great. That uh, It won't drive people necessarily directly to the podcast, but it will get them to our page, yes. which should get them to the podcast. So all reviews are great. We welcome them all. We love them. Um, so let's get some, Please some, tell me some something good, good news. Let's get some good news before I say goodbye. Uh, so, as we all know, the November 3rd election was the Y2K <laughs> of elections. It just realized that, again, there are probably <laughs> listeners who don't know what Y2K means. <laughs> Basically, everybody thought the world was going to end on December 31st in 2000. Yeah. That's what Y2K was. Because uh, our computers couldn't <laughs> handle it. And now we carry them in our pockets. So, <laughs> I know. Gosh. Ugh. I'm going to go get my cane after this. I think it's official. I need one now. So, <clears throat> at least when it comes to threats of foreign digital interference, despite significant evidence that there could be trouble, and because of the months or years even of preparation and hardening, um, the election security team was able to mitigate any potential threats effectively. Throughout 2020, social media platforms increased spending to minimize the influence of accounts from foreign governments. Uh, DHS worked with local election officials in nearly all 50 states to shore up their cyber defenses. Uh, I know I had to jump through all sorts of hoops just to run ads on Facebook for this <laughs> yes. show. And Robin Please. still can't, because apparently they think you're some sort of I don't know, man. foreign agent. I don't know. Um, I just want to tell people about mail-in voting. So, come on. Uh, and all of these, all of these steps, they worked. Um, Chris Krebs, who you may have heard of, 
uh, who uh, the the director, uh, the Chris Krebs, formerly known as the director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at the Department of Homeland Security, um, called it the most secure election in U.S. history. Right. And then got fired for it. But focus on the first part, the most secure election in U.S. history. And that is definitely something to celebrate. Massive turnout, and it was secure. Um, and there are actual, just throwing this zinger here at the end, there's actual multiple ways to validate the results of an election. Um, not just counting the ballots and comparing signatures, but also looking at the, uh, for example, the, the random number dis- uh, distribution. Uh, which sounds really, really weird, but I was reading into this. We know that results are accurate if they follow a certain pattern hmm. in numbers. And every every group of random numbers will eventually break down into this pattern. It'll have, you know, the, the most, uh, it's like the first, the first digit pattern. Um, it sounds really weird, but basically if the number distribution breaks down so that the first digit of, um, of like say the votes by county, right? Is you mostly get ones, right? And then the second most is twos and then the third most is threes and so on and so forth. You know that you probably have a legitimate Hmm. distribution of random numbers because humans are really, really, really bad at making up random numbers. This sounds super abstract and I'm sure people are not following me on the podcast. I'll see if I can find the article to post on our, our uh, Facebook page. Um, but because humans are so bad about making up random numbers, if you look at the distribution of the first digit, you'll see things like there'll be more threes than there are twos, which doesn't happen. It's, it's just cool stuff. And it has to do with how, how our numbering really system cool. works. Nerdy, um, super nerdy, but the, super cool. It's so nerdy and i love it it's so it's so cool anyway um all of the distributions have turned out um normal what you would expect for an election so far that's great that's that's encouraging anyway yeah so um let's see i mean happy super late uh diwali to anybody who celebrates that yeah we're we're (laughs) We're pretty late late on that we forgot to say it last time and happy thanksgiving to everybody uh, I hope you are all safe. If you are choosing to uh, get together with family, please take precautions and uh, don't give each other the plague. And we will be back in two standard Earth weeks uh, with another breakdown. Subject topic to be determined. Send us your ideas. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Take care of yourself. Yeah.